podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Ready? Play. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, welcoming today uh, David uh, Samuel. I hope I'm saying your surname correctly, David. You are indeed, yes. Okay, there are more complicated names in the tennis world, both in the coaching and uh, player department. David, of course, is uh, Liam Brody's uh, coach, um, among other one or two other players as well. But before we get into that, uh, David, I've got a question for you, and I'm going to go straight for it. Can you explain this picture for me? Can you see the picture I've got up on the screen? Uh, yes, I can, yeah. So that's uh, Marcus Daniel, myself, and Demolina a few years ago. Uh, we went through a little period where every tournament we went to, we we took a picture uh, uh, from on top with the logo of the tournament there. So this was the Australian Open. Uh, I think they made third round that year. So it was a pretty good tournament. But yeah... We just did it for fun. So I've got I've got a few of those from a few tournaments. Yeah, right. I mean, that's obviously your picture. You've got to top your your Twitter page um, at Dave Samuel for those of you tuning in. There's a nice picture of well as well of you and uh, Liam here, for example, in uh, Bergamo that I'm just having a quick look at. Uh, what's this about? What's this picture all about at the end of October? This one here. Uh, yeah, so uh, on a day off uh, at the tournament, we we went up to the old village, which had some really good restaurants. Uh, and we had lunch there. And this was the view from the old village looking down on the town. That's Liam, myself, and Liam's brother, Callum, uh, uh, who travels with us and, and helps out with a lot of admin for, for Liam. Do you have any sympathies for Manchester City, bearing in mind Liam's zero? Zero. zero. What's what? Have, have you got a team? Yeah, I'm a Man United fan. Oh, oh. <laughs> this is. My, I've written a book about United, so I guess you and Liam sort of um, jest with each other a bit about football. Yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, since I've been working with Liam, the the power base has shifted completely. So I haven't had the bragging rights at all. Uh, He's too young for that. (laughs) Tell us about, talking about your relationship with, your working relationship with with Liam, how did that come about? And, you know, what what happened basically? Uh, Well, I've known Liam since he was, you know, about four or five years old. So I was the head coach at Matchpoint Tennis Centre, which was one of the, first indoor centers in the country uh in bramhall in, in uh near manchester so and he was from stockport and his dad was a member of match point and played tennis and uh he used to bring the kids in and he used to have to bribe uh, naomi and emma to to play and liam was you know starting with uh, mini tennis over there and then uh, I went and moved to Leeds to run the the uh, academy, uh, the LTA National Academy in Leeds. And I I recruited Naomi into that academy uh, when not many people believed in in, in her. And uh, and then Liam used to sometimes come up and I'd, I'd give him a couple of lessons here and there, uh, but he was mostly traveling then with his dad. And then uh, the next real interaction we had was in Winnipeg in Canada, where he was there playing a, a $15,000 future. And I was there with Richard Gabb and Marcus Daniel, who you saw, and uh, a couple of Scott Clayton Bath players. And we got talking. And one of the questions that I asked was, why he was still playing futures when clearly with a few tweaks to his game, I believed he could survive at challenger level. So he asked me if I'd go on court with him there. We did a, we did a session. Uh, we talked about his tennis and he, and I, I had to leave uh, uh, after the first round there. 
and um, he went on to win the tournament. So when he came back, he asked me if uh, if I'd work with him, and uh, I said yes. He was with Mark Hilton with the LTA at that stage, so uh, he asked if 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 Mark could still stay involved, and and I agreed to that, and we we got started, and he won. He won Wrexham straight after that, and uh, another 15K, which he hadn't hit one 10Ks before, but not 15s. And then uh, I took him immediately onto the Challenger Tour, and he qualified for Napa Valley. And then very soon after that, made finals of Charlottesville. And, and actually, unfortunately, got to the last round of qualifying of the Australian Open. Uh, uh, in the January. So we'd only been working together, you know, about five months at that stage. And he'd already gone from, you know, 330 in the world to top 200. Mm -hmm. uh, and and lost to Mike Russell, who was in his last uh, uh, Grand Slam. And it's a, it's a real shame because he had beaten Mike Russell uh, a couple of months before in Knoxville Challenger, making the semifinals there, uh, which was very disappointing for, for him. Uh, and then we actually split up um, in about April that that year, mm -hmm. and then eighteen months later uh, he came back, and we've been together ever since. So that was like two thousand and sixteen. Okay, so it's been six years now in the second stint. When you when you first came across him, you mentioned there was a couple of tweaks to his game, and I'm particularly interested in what it's like being a coach at that level, if you like, the ITF level, a bit lower down the rankings. But what were the tweaks that you were particularly focused on with Liam? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing was for him to use his lefty forehand more and, and try to get some more... Uh, uh, fizz on the ball and 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 actually curl the ball cross court more take people out of court more um uh and then the second thing was taking the ball a lot earlier okay. so Liam used to you know do a lot of road running he's got a you know very good legs and moves extremely well but uh, in my opinion he was using his legs to to save himself rather than as a weapon and 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 we worked a lot on taking the ball earlier, taking on second serves, uh, which are philosophies that uh, that I've believed in in all my coaching career. You know, you know, sadly in one way, Roger Federer in 2018, when he you know came out and won the Australian Open after the layoff, took the ball so early, and that kind of woke up the whole of the tennis world. You know, McEnroe had obviously done it before that. Uh, but but Federer doing it seemed to awaken the idea of taking the ball so early in everybody, and and I feel like I've lost a slight bit of my competitive edge as a coach because uh, it's now something that uh, you know very good players are all doing, and I think that was one of the reasons why Liam cut through so quickly from like three thirty to top two hundred and you know got to about one hundred and fifty. Uh, because just by taking it earlier, earlier in, 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 in that time in tennis and back in 2014, 15, uh, not that many people were doing it. How's it going right now with this particular period of the year, David? What, what happens between you and you and player? Let's look at Liam. We will be looking at your, your other protege in a minute, but, um, just talking about you and Liam right now, obviously we've got Australia uh, coming up in about, well, the season in Australia kind of kicks off in about four weeks. What's the schedule like uh, in terms of qualifying, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, well, he's in off-season training now and he's doing quite a lot of high-altitude training, which is a, a machine that he's bought that allows him to, you know, train uh, wearing masks, which... Uh, mimics altitude and uh, and sleeping in in an altitude tent, um, and and training extremely hard. Uh, also, he had uh, an injury after you know that forced him to pull out of the quarterfinals of Tel Aviv against Chilich. 
So he had a five-week sort of block there. He had had a five-week block before Tel Aviv after the U.S. Open. And, and now he's back on, on another training block. So I think physically he's going into next year the best he's ever, ever been. You know, well, I won't even say I think I know he is. And, uh, and then we, we're also, you know, working on, on a couple of little things uh, in the game that uh, little tweaks that I think, you know, the game is set now. He's playing very, very good tennis. And it's just getting a little better at everything he does to get that final bit of consistency that hopefully will, you know, rocket him into the the top hundred in 2023. Which you know, if he'd got the points from Wimbledon and COVID hadn't have happened, uh, I think he might, you know, he probably would have would have achieved it already. Uh, in the COVID year, he was top hundred, but people kept their points, so uh, he didn't quite fall over the line then. So, Go on. so yeah, so that's, that's the aim and, uh, and yeah, I think he's going to be physically in, in really the best shape ever to, to launch into 2023. And then we start off in Canberra, the challenger into qualifying for Australian open. Okay. When's that? Is that end of December? Is it? Uh, Canberra starts on, I think the 3rd of January. And then qualifying is the 9th of January. Qualifying. So that's really, you know, that's arguably one of the biggest weeks of the yeah. year. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's uh, it's almost insanely quick. I yeah, think, yeah. Uh, Australian Open, I think, ought to be last week of January and first week of February. But I don't make the schedule. <laughs> okay, indeed. Listen, uh, you touched on Wimbledon, and I think we should definitely do that. Um, bearing in mind, is it fair to say the highlight of his career so far? Um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think he would say, and I would say that the Olympics third round was a highlight. I think playing Davis Cup was another highlight. But yes, yeah, certainly in terms of tournament play, uh, uh, this, this was obviously a big highlight. Having beaten Schwartzman on a, on a big court as well, that's not easy to do. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, Schwartzman, I mean, obviously is a, you know, uh, was a top 10 player uh, a couple of years ago, albeit that probably had a bit more uh, reputation on, on clay than on grass. What is it like as a coach? I mean, the night before a match, are you guys talking about the opposite player? Are you working more on Liam's strengths or or do you do you have a sort of a lengthy talk about the opposition and their strengths and weaknesses? Um, I'd, I'd say the lengthy talk usually comes before the tournament. Uh, the night before, it's it's actually quite short. It's just the the few little pointers as to as to way the way he's going to play the person. Uh, also, a big focus is to really, you know, steal the mind to deliver what you can deliver as well. You know, because uh, to play the right way. In, 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 in big matches, you know, you, you have to be brave. And, you know, <laughs> you know, there would be no reason for people to have to be brave if, if there was no kind of fear there because everybody is nervous and, and, and a little bit afraid going into, into big matches or any match. And, and you, 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 the preparation of the mind to really settle and be determined to put your game on the court in the right way uh, is, is a big part of preparation. And you think, oh, well, that should just happen. Uh, it doesn't. You have to continually work at that. It, it's not automatic. Yeah, right. So obviously we've uh, had the season gone by. I mean, do you and Liam set out objectives for 2023? Do you look at facts and figures? Do you look at what, how last year went and look at every tournament and, and think about improving? Uh, I think, I mean, obviously you, you, you do that all through the year. Um, and I'd say that at the end of the year, you kind of have a summary of, of how the year has gone. And then you do look to the, the key points that need to be improved for the following year. And, uh, you know, we had that chat um, last week. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it, you know you have to keep 
creating the clarity of mind uh, and the clarity of what you're practicing uh, and stay on track, which can easily get bumped. You can easily get bumped off track by by uh, an odd match here and there that doesn't go the right way and and start to overthink the problem. And I think a big part of the coach is to, is to say, no, you know, that's a bit of an anomaly or, you know, and, and, you know, the other person I've played extremely well, or you missed a couple of opportunities. <laughs> you need to stay on the path and, and, and not really tinker with the path, because if you, if you keep tinkering with the path, you, you're not building in the same direction all the time. What's it like coaching two players? Obviously, you've also got Marcus Daniel on board as well. Um, tell us about what it's like coaching two players and also tell us a bit about Marcus. Uh, well, this 2022 has been very easy because Marcus uh, got hurt after uh, um, Australian Open and hasn't played the rest of the year. And I, I don't think he, you know, he had a serious knee uh problem and uh he he won't play until probably march uh or april 2023 so 2022 was 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 a lot easier but um i mean the i think at 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 challenger and futures level you could you could cope with two maybe even three singles players uh, at tour level, the only reason it could work is because Marcus is is focused on doubles and Liam uh, on the singles, and and Marcus, you know, tended to to go deeper in tournaments um, in in doubles. So if if you know Liam as the singles player always had priority, but it's easier for the doubles players to organise practice around Liam's practice and if Liam happened to lose you know earlier then I would just continue on with Marcus so yeah, I mean yeah. I think it's 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 more of the doubles players decision as to whether they are satisfied with the amount of time that you can put into them but I mean I've been with Marcus since like 2012 uh you know we know each other very well he know he's a very good professional he knows what he has to do so uh, the the less hands-on doesn't bother him. Uh, he, you know, he knows what he's got to do and, and he's just happy to spend uh, the time available that I have with him, which was, you know, mostly in the Grand Slams anyway and, and uh, some of the bigger 1,000s. Tell us about the player-coach dynamic. I think as tennis grows, obviously social media, the television, I mean, we've got wall-to-wall -wall coverage, including this channel and things popping up all over the show. And in a way, we're all looking for different angles and different stories. You know, the coaches are becoming more of a thing now. Tennis fans, maybe yesteryear, just used to watch Wimbledon a couple of weeks a year. That was it, particularly in the UK anyway. But now they're watching all the tournaments. They're getting into the Masters and perhaps even challenges and lower down. But also, there's focus now on the coaches. We watch a match and, you know, every 30 seconds, 60 seconds, end of every point, we go into the box to see what's going on. So faces and names are becoming more prominent. We're also looking at relationships, et cetera, et cetera. What I think many people, especially me anyway, find interesting is this player-coach dynamic because, David, who's who's the boss? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is a very strange sport where the boss is paid by uh, by the em employee in, in a way. It's 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 really strange because I think I mean the the higher you get, the more collaborative the the relationship is. Um, but I think the the more mature players. Uh, don't necessarily think about the fact that they pay the coach as a reason to to you know use it as leverage against listening. 
because there'd be no this you know if, if the coach is there to help a player get better and and you know you can have a discussion about things uh but ultimately the coach is watching the player the player can't see themselves yes they can look at video but video is not the same as the feeling that that you can't you can't get a you can't grasp what the player is actually feeling on court, uh, which you can only see live and feel live, and therefore you know the, the player has to trust that what you're feeling is correct, and if it is, they will be feeling it as well, so they know. Um, and and so if you if you're wanting them to do something, and they argue it they can argue their case but ultimately they have to defer to 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 your knowledge and also to that the the reality that they can't see themselves in in a match um however if it is continuing continual disagreement then i'd say you know the player and coach have to sit down and know what the vision is and agree the vision because if they don't agree the vision of how the player is going to play, then you're going to have this constant battle and it's not going to work. Um, and, and I think, you know, as you also mature as a coach, you, you realize that, you know, as long as the player is trying to implement that, if you do that in practice consistently, eventually it's going to show in matches. And I think a big part of being a good coach is having the patience to allow that process to happen because, you know, the, the things get very subtle at a high level. So therefore they're not, you know, there's a lot of pressure that, you know, things happen very fast on court and it's not that easy just to implement something like that. Even if you can do it well, you've got to practice it a lot and get incredibly comfortable and then get it comfortable implementing it in a match. So it, it, the higher you get, the slower the process of what happens in practice being delivered in matches. And, and I think, you know, sometimes less experienced coaches uh, get in a rush. They, they want to see this, you know, they've practiced it well and everything. So it needs to be there in the match. And, and under pressure is a totally different situation. So I think uh, the dynamic is very, very interesting. And um, I think as a coach, you have to set your stall out. And if you've agreed the vision, you've got to hold the player accountable to that vision. Um, and I think that's where the strength of character comes in. Um, but also I think the maturity of the player comes in as well. I think the first stint where I had with Liam, um, where he was not nearly as advanced as he is now, uh, he got to a point where he was struggling with with the vision because it took a lot of bravery to to move in that direction. And I think he, you know, he 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 walked away from that for 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 a period, but ultimately realized that 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 it probably is the right way and and came back which takes a lot of bravery right there and then to to come back tell me about the feeling of being a coach you're in the box you've maybe been building up to a tournament such as australia in terms of qualifying and then hopefully for you guys you make it to the first round um once you're there, like at Wimbledon, obviously this year getting to the third round, the anxiety that even fans can have is, you know, it's palpable and it's, it's, it's difficult to control. Now, I can only imagine what it must be like for you as a coach when, when we're going to Hawkeye and we're seeing if this ball has gone in or out, potentially to break serve, to win a set, and who knows, even to win a match. How are your nerves? Are you, are you, how are you coping? Um, I think in general, very well. You, you're used to it. It's, 
you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, once they're out there playing, uh, you don't have much control at all. Uh, you can give them a few pointers now. You can coach uh, at ATP level. Um, but you also got to be very careful with, with how much you give a player because, you know, it's stressful out there. And, you, you, you know, again, clarity is really important. So if you're giving any message, it's got to be very crisp and clear and, and not confusing in any way. And sometimes that's one of the most difficult things is to work out exactly what to say that's very punchy and quick. That's going to make a difference and, and be taken in by the player in the right way. Um, and, and a lot of it comes from discussion you know, before a match because... You know, if, if, if you say, you know, play, you know, more forehands line, you know, the the player has to know, and you've had this discussion beforehand, that that doesn't mean start trying to force shots line, you know, but be aware that when the opportunity is there, take it more often. And, and so, but if something arises in the match that you haven't discussed, as an example, and Again, it's 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 the player having the awareness that you know you know more T serves doesn't mean like eighty percent T serves. They've they've got to have that intelligence to know that you know just tweak it a little bit, and 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 so you know that the the communication is is really really important to to get that right, which is probably the most difficult thing in terms of the nerves. You know, in in certain you know, really big matches that tend to take a life of their own. Uh, it does get more difficult. You have to be aware that the player is going to be looking at you pretty often. And, you know, if you're like this <laughs> and they see that, you know, they, they're already stressed and it's like, oh, my God, that, that, that point must have been even bigger than I thought or whatever. So you've got to try and as, as, as much as possible keep – quite stoic uh, in the box and, and very encouraging. And, uh, and that sometimes, uh, you know, is, is also difficult to, to not show your emotion at all in, in a big moment. Um, and the other thing is not to get elated either when things are going well, because it changes so fast. You, you, you're, not, you're never safe until match point is won. It's all, you know, it, it's, and, and I think sometimes that's also very, very difficult when a player's closing in on, on winning a match. That, that's really important that you don't allow, you know, you're asking a player to play one point at a time. As the coach, you need to play one point at a time as well. You just cannot allow your mind to, to drift forward. I do believe that energy, um, connects the player and the coach, you feel connected while they're playing. And I think if you have negative thoughts or, or you're, you know, you're looking ahead or whatever, there's a possibility that that affects the player's outlook because they're so in tune with how, how you are on the side and, and, and you're so in tune with what they're feeling. And that's what you can't get on video, of course. What are your thoughts? I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it does. It does. It does. It, it's sort of it's in a whole gamut of emotions, but I think particularly it's particularly interesting that sometimes you have to keep those in check. Um, I will. We're just coming towards the end now. Just a couple more questions for you. One is about on court coaching. What are your thoughts and feelings? We've had this. I think the trial pit has come to an end now, as far as I'm aware. Um, I don't know how you feel a, 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 a about that. I think. They may as well renew it. The, the The bottom line is it's been going on, okay, for years and years anyway. So formalizing it is 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 actually fairer because uh, it means everybody has an equal crack at the whip. Uh, and also, I think it 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 will help coaching because you know if if a coach is a a bit of a bluffer in those key moments they're gonna to have to come up with something you know it's easy after a match to 
you know, come up with something. But in the in the heat of the moment, it's 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 not that easy. So I think it will, you know, it will identify for players the the better coaches from those that are maybe not not as ready or experienced. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's it's something that, as I said, you know, been going on since whenever you know since tennis been been professional so it, it seems ridiculous not to actually have a way of doing it i want to talk now finally about the situation slightly lower down the tennis food chain i hope you don't mind me suggesting that outside the top 100 it must be a very uh, a different situation to when you're certainly top 20 things like costs and also relations with other players, for example, are are some do some acknowledge you a little bit more than others? Shall we say, both in terms of the locker room, in the hallways, in the bowels of the various different stadiums that we're in, but also, you know, in and around the tour, and then also obviously the financial aspect, and maybe you have to think about one or two things compared to other players. Uh, well, firstly, uh, you know. I think what you're getting at is, and I wrote a book about this called Locker Room Power, is that at every level, there are the kind of bigger dogs in a tournament and they have locker room power and and it allows them to kind of win quite a lot of matches just because of, you know, the fact that they're on a good run or or because of their ranking or, or how they carry themselves. And you can learn a lot of those traits if you if you focus on them. Uh, but also, you know, locker room power is, if you know about it and how it works and you understand it, you uh, you have the antidote against it and can start to develop your own locker room power and be able to understand what, what top players know intrinsically uh, and they use it um, against lesser players uh, because it makes their job easier. So that's a, that's you know part of the difficulty of coming through is to is to be able to overcome those feelings of inadequacy and feeling that you know not only even if you feel your game is maybe good enough mentally you have to feel like you you belong you know and that's at every level the jump from you know ITF to futures to to challenges challenges to tour and and upper tour level which is the 1000s and, and and grand slams and and that is a that is a process i think the the you know uh, the spread of of money in tennis is starting to improve now i think the atp have realized that challenges are an important part of the process and and you know the itfs are still quite a way behind uh, though $25000 futures uh, are improving things, but the money is is not enough. Uh, and I'm not, you know, for one minute advocating that maybe um, it should be enough to to you know cater for a thousand players on the planet. I think, you know, but I think once players start, you know, nearing you know 500 in the world, they are pretty damn good players, and certainly inside 300. Uh, these are very accomplished players that are working very hard and, and you know, kind of deserve to make a living. And uh, I think the the real challenge also for players at, at futures level, if they don't have, you know, big sponsors or very wealthy parents, is, is they might be able to make enough money to stay on the road and play and and get some coaching back at some training base but they never have a coach on the road with them and and that is incredibly incredibly difficult to to handle because you know when players get down or or they lose a few matches and they start to get a little foggy in their brain it's really hard for them to 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 straighten that out themselves on the road um i think another thing is who they hang around with because, you know, I have a little adage that, that I believe is true. Um, is that 
you know, they they need other players. They need other players to practice with. They need kind of the friendships on the road to keep going. But they've got to be very careful with the the, the choice of friends, the choice of practice partners and that, because there are players at the lower levels who, who you know, I mean, I would say are more, more like, tourists than than actual serious players and and it, and you know it's easy to sort of become a victim at at the sort of 10 or $15,000 tournament level where you know you just have to you know the the top players are lucky and anybody breaking through is lucky and you know if if I had the money I would and if I had that I would and and, and at the end of the day you know, if if you work really hard and you have the ability, and and you you are, you know, reasonably well disciplined, you will climb the rankings. But be very very careful with with who you surround yourself with because they they can get more lost that way, and you know, fall in love with the idea of being a professional tennis player rather than falling in love with the work that it takes to be a professional tennis player. Are there players that stand out for you um, in terms of, um, listen, I, I don't expect you to highlight names negatively, but what I'd like to know is maybe are there players that stand out in a positive sense, at least uh, for the players ranked lower down and you don't have to name names, but are there some players that you think personally think that guy's a bit of a X, Y, Z for just, just ignoring you or just being a bit demeaning? Um, look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into names, but I, I, but I mean, I do think that players at, at the lower levels need to look at examples of players who have come through and kind of look at their path and, and how they've done it and what they're invested in, you know, because, you know, it, you can go out and buy a, 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 a fancy pair of shoes and, and, and uh, you know, and smart clothes or whatever and spend a thousand pounds, or you can invest in better string or invest in a coach for a week or, or something like that, um, which, you know, means sacrificing the nicer clothes. But, you know, if, if you're at the lower levels, it, it's going to take, you know, unfortunately a lot of sacrifice if you don't have, you know, as I said, a sponsor or wealthy parents uh, who, who are willing to back you all the way. Um, but, you know, there are great examples. I mean, Lissy Barnett, who, who's, you know, come through to play Billie Jean King Cup, been at Bath, you know, pretty much all her career, apart from going to college for four years. And Lissy, when she came out of college, was not anywhere near being a, a good professional tennis player. But she's learned it and she's just kept at it, you know, and, and you know, Estrella Burgess, you know, if you remember him, but I mean, he was playing futures, you know, up until sort of 28, 29 years of age. He'd have to stop and coach for a few months to get money together to go back and play. But, you know, he his desire to do it was so high that he he came through and, and you know, made top 50 in the world, which is and won, what, two tour events? Uh, at one stage, he was the oldest guy. He might still be. Well, I think I think Gilles Muller might have been older when he won his first tour event. Okay. But but I mean, these guys, you know, I mean, Estrella Burgess is an amazing story of of perseverance. Um, you know, I think you know Lissy Barnett, you know, Samantha Murray. The, these are these are players that just really worked at their trade and and just got better and better, and and didn't get distracted to, or too distracted, you know, by the, the feeling sorry for themselves brigade or the, the party brigade, or, you know, there's, there's a few different kind of, uh, you know, players out there doing it, trying to do it, trying to do it differently. But at the end of the day, you cannot avoid the work. You can't avoid the focus either. And I'd say, you know, they go hand in hand together without, you know, a really good work ethic and, and real focus on, on what you're trying to do. And I'd say to any player, get absolute clarity of 
what you think your game will look like at a high level and work towards that vision. And if you get to that vision and it's the right vision, then you, you, you will be making money. Uh, if you work towards the wrong vision, of course, which is, you know, sadly, there are some players, you know, a little less now because of YouTube and, and, and all the media and everything. It's quite easy to find out, you know, what the right things are to do. But, uh, you know, certainly in the past, I think people would work really hard to a very bad vision and, of course, never come through. Have you got any thoughts on the Vadasco ADHD situation with the with the you know the therapeutic drug situation? Have you, have you got any thoughts on 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 use of these kind of medications? Does it annoy you? Do you do you think it's fair game uh, in terms of the fact that obviously he had an exemption and players lowered down and temptations and and all of these kind of things? I mean, it's it's such a difficult thing because. You know, when there's big money involved, I think there are always an element of people who will try to cheat the system. But I mean, if you definitely have an issue and really need the medication, then I think absolutely you need to have it. Um, you know, how performance enhancing is, is always debatable, but but it, you know, if if it does enhance performance, you know it it is really uh, it's it, it's really difficult because if you really need the medication, but at the same time it's it's giving you an edge, you know, you know, it, it, you know I don't know what the answer is to that, but I, I but I do think that that the history of players needs to be looked at very carefully. You know, if somebody suddenly develops ADHD at the age of, you know, 22, I'm very skeptical. <laughs> you know, if, 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 if they were diagnosed at 10 years old or, or whatever and been on this medication their whole lives, then I say, of course, it's, it's right and proper. Uh, I, I, you know, I think, you know, that... That's the only answer I can think of, of of legitimate drugs for legitimate problems is, you know, I'm not saying if, if, if it's absolutely true that something can develop later in age and and I, I'd say I wouldn't take, you know, I don't even know all the rules, but surely one doctor's view cannot be the only view. I think if, if somebody develops something and needs a medication suddenly, that there's got to be a panel of, you know, three independent doctors who examine and, and, and make sure that it, that it's actually genuine. Um, you know, you can't just go to Switzerland to, to what is it in Invictus or something like that. <laughs> the, 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 uh, you know, and, and say, you know, I, I, you know, I, I want to, you know, I want to die. You know, you, you, you have to have an independent panel and everything like that, making sure that there's, you're not being coerced or anything like that. You know, so, you know, I do think that there are ways of, of making sure that any drug that a player takes is legitimate. You know, how that looks, uh, uh, as I said, I've got some ideas, but, but I'm sure there are, smarter people than me that can can work out a fair system that does not allow players to abuse a, a drug for a small edge. And the one good thing about tennis, I'd say, is this is the skill levels and everything that it takes, whilst drug enhancement obviously helps, I am I'm convinced that you know, you can still be the player that's that's maybe you know cheating. Sure, you know a little bit harder. Do you, David? This is I promise you is the penultimate question. I've got one about your podcast, by the way. But um, I just you can keep it as brief as you want, and I also don't expect names. But have you ever heard? Do you suspect when you suddenly see a guy coming from nowhere 
um, or someone maybe on the WTA side as well. And have you ever heard or had strong suspicions about perhaps uh, untoward uh, behavior in terms of enhancements? Well, I, mean, I, mean, I think occasionally I've had the odd suspicion, <clears throat> but my, my view of it is at the end of the day, uh, there is drug testing, there is a system in place. And if you're going to waste a lot of energy trying to, because nobody's ever going to know anything for sure until it's proven. Uh, I just see it as a waste of energy to try and, you know, pretend that somehow you're going to find out uh, the, the truth about a thing, you know, and I think it's very, very dangerous when people start just sending rumors around that are unsubstantiated. And I don't think it does the sport any good. And I think ultimately you've got to believe that, you know, most people are fair, but it would also be naive to say that with such big money involved, that nobody would try to cheat because that's not, you know, in any, in any industry in the world, there is, you know, some corruption and and you, you you just can't avoid that so you know tennis is no different from any other industry uh they, you know if if there's you know an advantage to be had there's a certain small percentage of a population that will try to take advantage of it dave final part tell us about your nuggets podcast yeah, this, uh, this started actually, I did a, uh, uh, the Berkeley Executive Coaches Institute course uh, through the University of Berkeley um, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, a fantastic 10-day course. It's very, very immersive, very intense. And I was one of the older uh, um uh, people on the course, you know, trying to enhance my coaching abilities. And, you know, uh, certainly it's amazing that when you, when you do courses like that, that have absolutely nothing to do with tennis, the, the, the amount of nuggets you pick up that can help your coaching. Uh, but I was, you know, we'd have a lot of discussions o over this 10 day period and, and, you know, a lot of the time they ask me my opinion about something and uh, a few of the candidates on the course would say, oh, you know, it's time for another Dave Samuel nugget. And, and then one of them actually suggested, why don't you start a podcast just giving out nuggets of, 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 of your wisdom? And, and I have to say here that, you know, I've read a lot, I've listened to a lot. Uh, been on a lot of courses. So, you know, what I try to do is distill lessons I've learned into small little nuggets that that can help people in everyday life. Uh, I mean, this podcast is not aimed specifically at tennis players, tennis coaches. These are more life lessons that, that I've learned. And, and you know, if, if it helps one person have a better day or one person you know, in, improve their life, then, then I think it's worthwhile. Um, and, and I, uh, I didn't want to have a long podcast. So it's a no frills, literally five minutes or less. Occasionally I go to six minutes on a topic. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like, can you get a, a quick five minute or less nugget every single week? And, and, and that became a challenge for me. And, and even now I, I ask the question, you know, why am I doing it? Uh, because it, it doesn't have a huge uh, listening base. Not that I do a huge amount to promote it, but, uh, but it's almost like, can I keep the discipline of, of doing this every week? And it does help me, you know, clarify my own mind little bits of information that, that I've picked up over, over years and, and put it down, you know, on paper and then, you know, do a podcast about it. 
So, uh, yeah, you, you're doing very well. If you, but you, you just hit 150 subscribers. Congratulations. 850. 850. Oh, 850, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, almost a thousand. So, uh, and I know how difficult that is. Uh, I don't even know how many subscribers I've got because uh, I'm not very good at the tech stuff. But I know it, it gets about 110, 120 downloads a week. That's more than that. Actually, to be honest with you, we sort of more on the YouTube thing, but uh, on, on we've got our podcast as well, and we don't quite reach those dizzy heights. So, David, I think we're not even got an ATP ranking point when it comes to podcasts, and you're you're top two hundred at least. Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, you know, I, I just you know, for the moment, going to continue it. I do ask people to engage with me on it. Uh, you know, very few do, uh, but I. Don't, I, I I mean, I think if I was much more tech savvy, I would, I would know how to, you know, maybe people do try and engage with me and I don't see it. I don't know. <laughs> but if, if I get an email, then, then I'll respond. Or if I get a, a, a tweet or uh, uh, an Instagram message or whatever, though sometimes I can go a week without looking at that as well. So I apologize. Maybe. But I will maybe. get back to everybody if they do, if they do contact me. This meeting, I think, has been four months in the making. When I say four months, uh, I sent you a message four months ago and you responded yesterday. And then we, we fixed it up for today. So it was, it's great. Um, but you said, so I haven't checked my messages recently. Well, yeah, on Twitter, I didn't realize that there's another like, if, 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 if you don't follow someone, I, I went through and there were a bunch of junk messages. Ah, I mean, I would have gone into your junk. Around. Yeah, yeah. And I found yours. I thought, oh, wow, this, and then, uh, you know, I went and looked at your, your page and everything like that and went, okay, this is genuine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and which is why I responded. But I, I didn't even know that that part existed. <laughs> so uh, I, I was sitting uh, on a train, actually, and, and, and thought, I'll just go and check my, my accounts and, and found that message. So I apologize for taking so long. Listen. You know, really and truthfully, you know, email and WhatsApp are, are my <laughs> two preferred avenues because I do check those every day. Got it. So if Liam needs you urgently, he doesn't uh, he doesn't go it's use anything WhatsApp. else. It's always yeah, WhatsApp. just WhatsApp. Yeah. All right, David. Listen, I want to say a big thank you. It's been almost an hour, despite the fact uh, we said half an hour. We were in your in your junk list. Maybe one day we'll get promoted to your actual uh, list, David. Uh, but, but... I've, I've, uh... What if favoritize you or whatever? Oh, okay. We've been favoritized. Oh, well, so, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that it was there, so I apologize. Make sure you check out David on Twitter at Dave Samuel. I know he's on Instagram as well, where he uh, posts or links his podcast on a, on a weekly basis, pretty much. So check that out as well for his little nuggets of information. And listen, uh, I just want to say a big thank you and also good luck for Australia. Thanks very much, and thanks for some good questions. Uh, I hope I didn't go off into too many tangents. <laughs> You're great. I'm more conscious of, of using up your time. So a big thank you, Dave. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, make sure you hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Sports Social Podcast Network.